Morning, church. It is the the beginning of the last sprint to Christmas. Raise your hand if you have all your Christmas shopping done. I would say that's probably less than 5%. (laughs) Some of you are going to join me on the 24th that evening after Sabbath. Guys day at the mall. It's one a year thing, once a year. Once a year. They'll they'll be open late for you. They'll wait. There will be somebody there near the size of your significant other, your daughter, your wife, whatever, that you can say, I think she's about your size. And they'll say, oh, well, that's a four. Get a six. It can always go back. You know I'm right. We're talking about contentment. As we rush toward the, the, the Christmas moment, that, that day uh, that we gather around with our family and we share a meal and we, we open gifts and we celebrate and we spend some time saying, man, isn't it cool that Jesus came and came with base and authority. I blame the guitar. So we've been talking about contentment. And uh, as we've been talking about it, I did not bring pajamas or an Amy Grant song. I'm sticking with my original one. But I do want to remind you that... uh, this is one of the most difficult times of year to be content. Because everything is about discontent and hurry and rush and what you can get done. And, you know, at our house, now that the kids are grown, it's trying to figure out how we're going to manage to get everybody in the place at the same time. You know, I just wish that all the other parents involved in my children's life would just understand that I get first dibs. Five of these kids. You know how many parents that is to have to sort out? And so we are just this morning getting some of the last of those things nailed down. What time will we do this? What time will we do that? Well, who's doing this and who's doing that? Well, they're having it the night before and they're having the morning and they're... La, 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 ho, ho. As we move into the season, does it feel less contented to you? As we get closer to Christmas, does your peace factor grow or does it shrink? For me, it's kind of a sprint to the edge. And and it's, it's just that as you're working toward this thing, there are so many little details, bits and pieces. I was talking to someone in our church um, a couple weeks ago and they said, you know, Christmas is not stress for me. And I, and I, 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 I listened to, to the secret, and then I knew I'd never make it. 
Because they said, I start my Christmas shopping in January. And I buy my wrapping paper and my bows and all that sort of stuff when they're on sale. They said, you know, when I'm preparing for a big, big event at Christmas, I prepare ahead of time. I make the foods that I can make ahead of time. I put them in the freezer. I put them in the fridge so that when the time comes, I just slip them out and slip them in the oven. We're good to go. All my Christmas shopping is done by October. And I envy folks like that because then they can just ease into Christmas. It's like having a really good Friday preparation for the Sabbath. You know, when, you, when you've done, you've gotten everything done, the lawn's mowed, the house is clean, the dinner's made, and, and you're, all you're doing is just settling into the Sabbath. Have a really good Friday, it makes for a better Sabbath, right? Well, I think if you have a good October, it makes for a better Christmas. You know, so we all got to back up a couple of months and say, by the end of October, by Halloween, have it done. You know, I kind of don't even think about starting till after Thanksgiving. And I, I get the word, the phrase, don't even think about starting until after Thanksgiving. And I think that's why I get that anxious Christmas rush thing at the end of time. I think my phone just rang. Which one of you is calling me? It seriously, it just rang. I better turn the ringer off. See if that's my mom. Hold on just a second. No, not my mom. Somebody from Lusk, West Virginia. Anybody have family in Lusk, West Virginia? If you do, they're calling. And they somehow ended up with my number. See, anxiety at Christmas. So as we talk about it, I want to talk about unwrapping peace this morning. I want to talk about the idea that you can actually begin to be more contented in your whole life and not just the holiday season. The holiday season, I think, just puts punctuation on it. But I think our whole life could use more contentment. Don't you think? I think my whole life could use more peace, more serenity, more contentment. Um, I, I want you to note the fruits of the Spirit, as, as Galatians 5 has it. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Does that not sound like a Christmas song opener? Right? Big three words of Christmas are right there in the opening of the gifts of the, of the Spirit. What are we supposed to have by these fruits growing out in our life? Oh, Love, joy, peace, silent nights, and stuff like that. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ah, Lord Jesus, come. Come in here and start doing that, right? I want to talk about contentment, and I love the fact that we're talking about a baby in a manger because is there anything more contented looking than a sleeping baby? Maybe a sleeping grandpa. But that, that moment when that baby's just lying there quietly, peacefully slumbering away, contentment. It is the picture of contentment. It's not complacency. It's not to be complacent. Remember? It's not laziness. I know when we talk contentment, some of those things come to our minds, right? It is not fatalistic thinking. Oh, well. Oh, we're all doomed anyway. Oh, well. Yeah, you've got Winnie the Pooh. 
Tigger 2 and Eeyore the Killjoy. Fatalistic. It's not unmotivated. It's not the person who doesn't care. I used to know this girl in college. She said that, um, oh, and I just forgot the word. Apathy is widespread. But then again, who cares? Yeah, it's moving its way back. It'll hit your row any moment now. This is not what contentment means. Contentment is something else. Paul said, while in prison, there's a nice altar in there now, but I think dripping, grossness, there's no bathroom facilities, no water, no nothing. Paul said in a prison cell, either this one or one very next door to it, Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in, in any and every situation. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Are you there with me? I'm not there either. Do you wish you were there with him? The secret of being content. You know, we have the, we have the idea that that means I'm going to be content when things are going badly. Right? I'm going to be content when things are going badly. I wonder if it's not harder to be content when things are going goodly. Badly we get, oh man, oh man yeah, I got to figure out a way to be content when things aren't going well. But when things are going really well, do you ever just sit back and go, wow, okay, I'm good. Thank you, God. I'm blessed enough. I really don't need anything more. And you know, I'm good. Thanks. Just rest. Lean back and the heavenly lazy boy, which is the arms of Jesus. Say, good. I'm good. Paul said, I can learn the secret of contentment. I have learned to be content. And he's in prison at the time. Paul was an ardently religious man. Does that make you content? Hmm. So ardent religion probably didn't make him content, right? He was an ardently religious man. He said that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was so intent on it, it probably didn't really help his contentment. He was a driven evangelist. Paul was a driven evangelist. He said, I will travel to the ends of the earth. As far as he knew, Spain was the end of the earth. And he wanted to get as far out, do as many things as he could. He didn't even want to do evangelism where someone else had done evangelism. He always wanted to start a new work somewhere. He was an absolute driven evangelist. Anybody you know that's driven, that's content? They don't go together, do they? They don't seem to work together. He was a man of strong opinions. Right? Right? Remember, remember when other people confronted Paul, they better have a good argument in their pocket because he's coming back with a strong argument. Remember the conflict between he and Peter? Strong opinions. And bringing that up, he's not a person to, to back away from an argument. He's willing to face, to wade into, and deal with an argument. He is ready to go. So, did any of these things sound like Paul is a naturally complacent, contented, phlegmatic sort of guy? Doesn't, does it? But that guy learned to be content. I don't know if anybody in this room is more driven, more on it, more, more the guy who's cholerically going after everything than that guy. And that guy learned to be content. Okay, it's the chair. 
That guy learned to be content. If he can, we can. If he can, we can. He was a contented man. In all of that. And I don't think the drivenness went away. I don't think the ardor for spirituality went away. I don't think his desire to save people and do evangelism went away. I don't think any of that went away. He just learned to be content with all of that as who he was. With all of those things as his normal lifestyle, his normal heartbeat, he still learned to be content. Contentment, a state of happiness or satisfaction. A state of happiness and satisfaction. Are you there? If you're not, what would, what would it take to get there? What do you need? Do you need another buck? Would another buck make you content? Just one more buck. Five more. A hundred thousand more. Yeah, you're gonna, you guys are like, yeah, well, that might work. <laughs> We're in the neighborhood now. How about 250? Okay, 500 grand. Would 500 grand make you content? Nope, it would just make you wealthier than you are. Yeah. It might get some bills paid off. It might get you in a different economic situation. It might help you out with some problems, but it wouldn't make you content because contentment isn't going to come from your bank account. If it were, your last raise should have made you more content. Right? Your boss said, come on in here, sit down. You did really well this quarter. You know, we love what you're doing. Here's a dollar an hour raise. That should have made you a dollar an hour more content. Right? If it didn't, you can't get it there. What's it going to take to make you content? A, a better husband? Work with the one you got. You want a better husband? There's one way to get him there. Pray. You want a better wife? Same deal. Pray. You know what you need to pray? Make me work content with the wife I have. Make me more content with the husband I have because I haven't seen any changes in the last 45 years. I'm pretty much stuck with it. it just help me be, be calm about it. Help me be happy with the one I have so I can be contented tomorrow with what I'm discontent about today. We're striving for things through, for, through processes that don't actually get us there. We're striving for something that we have no ability to get by the normal human means and processes. Is that true? Paul is in prison when he tells us he's discovered what contentment looks like. He's not at his wealthiest. He's not at his most uh, religiously recognized. He's not in an evangelistic pulpit. I don't know that it requires that he be in jail, that he learn contentment. He probably learned contentment before he got there from, his, from reading Romans at least. But what was the secret? What did he do? He learned the secret of being content. Paul wanted the church to have it. He said, may, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. May God fill you with all joy and peace, serenity, peace, contentment. May, the God, may God fill you with those things. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He says, you know what the fruits of being in a spiritual walk are? Love, joy, peace, contentment, serenity, satisfaction. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says to the church, therefore having been justified by faith. So what's the first therefore? 
Now that you have been justified by faith, therefore, having been justified by faith, we, he and us, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having been justified by faith, we can have peace. Now that this is in place, now that this big boulder, uh, an anchor stone is in place, we can have peace. This morning, at 6.55 a.m., PowerPoint crashed on my computer. And three days of work went out the window because I had not saved it. How I got three days into a project and didn't save it, but I hadn't. So at 6.56 in the morning, I'm preaching on peace this morning. I'm pounding on my desk. Literally, if you had seen me, this is what it looked like. Probably harder than that. And then the irony of the situation struck me. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah. I kind of went, okay, God. Ha ha. Funny, funny. You know, I don't remember what I've been doing for the last three days. Some of this stuff was put on these PowerPoint slides three days ago, Lord. Right? And then I had this small moment of enlightenment. They almost always come in little packages. Big packages overwhelm and confuse me. And I realized that God knew me knew I had one hour before these guys would show up and want the little thumb drive back and knew that you were coming and knew what was going to happen. And I stopped. I looked at my now empty screen. PowerPoint came back on with nothing on it. It didn't even give me a recovered file. At least, you know, Word Perfect and Word have the, 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 the manners to give you a recovered file back. Nothing. I turned it off in hopes that it might recover. Still didn't. And I looked not smiling yet, but kind of chagrined and said, Okay, okay. God is still on His throne. You know, now that certain things are in place, when... When certain kinds of things settle into their proper perspective, when you're justified, when you know that, that you're justified, when you know that, that it, you've read the end of the story and we win, when you know that God's grace is your covering, when you know that God is almighty, all-powerful, and He loves you, Certain things get reoriented. And so in that last hour, I kind of went, okay. Some of what I was doing, you must not want me to do because I don't remember it. I was really relying on that slide, Lord, to help me finish what I was going to do here this morning. But some things that you find, they just help you find peace. 
Some of the parts, some of the stuff, some of what's going on around you. I don't know, will that stand out there? If it doesn't, God is still on his throne. They just help you reorient. Where you can stop pounding on your desk and say, that was really funny, God, and go on. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Now that you understand that you've been justified by faith, you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. The fruits of the Spirit can begin to grow in your life. Love, joy, peace. We're talking about the Prince of Peace this morning. It's right over there on the wall. I don't know if you've noticed... But this text is up here on the wall. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Prince of Peace. I still got this picture of you, JB, standing in here telling your daughter. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Holy One. Amen. This is what JB told me he was doing. You will... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know how you get peace? Hang out with the Prince of Peace. He's passing out peace. The Prince of Peace is passing out peace. Say that five times real fast. In Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, the Prince of Peace is passing out peace. That's how you get this. That's how you find this. That's what happens. You begin to discover the Prince of Peace. You begin to understand that the child that was born isn't just an ordinary child. Unto us a son of given, is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Thank you, Jesus. And he will be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This peace child paid the price for us to have that peace. God demonstrates his own love toward us. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We celebrate celebrate Christmas and it's awesome and we should. I think we're at a loss when we don't. I think it diminishes our experience when we don't. I think for us to be Scrooge, bah, humbug, no, no, Christmas folks, is to lose contact with the glorious arrival of Jesus in the first advent. To forget how amazing that was. That for God to to, to press his authority into a tiny little package, sleep in one of those, just so that he might grow up and be our rescuer. It's phenomenal. Christianity is based on two facts. Most religion is based on some sort of philosophical or theological idea. Christianity is based on two facts. Without these two facts, Christianity doesn't exist. One, Jesus came. And two, Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to put those together because without the death, the resurrection is meaningless. Without the resurrection, the death is just a tragedy. His birth, his death and resurrection are the foundation pillars of Christianity. 
And what's crazy about those things is we have a lot of historical backing for what we believe. It's not just hanging on some philosophical argument. Your faith isn't just hanging on some, some good set of philosophical facts or, or things you've wheezed at, wheedled out of the Word somewhere. It's, it's based on the reality of Jesus coming, living, dying, and raising the life again. And this manger and that cross are each other's companions. He came to bring peace by self-sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we were healed. Do you see the Scriptures building a case through the prophets for the Messiah? What was He going to do? Well, He was going to be called Mighty God and Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, God with us. And he was going to be bringing that peace through the power of his own stripes. And he was going to be the Lamb of God and the Son of Man. God had planned it all along. Back in Genesis chapter 15, I've shared this piece with you a few times, but to me it's the anchor for what we're talking about at Christmas. Paul uses this passage, this one on the screen, to build the argument for righteousness by faith. He says you can have righteousness by, by trusting God. It will be accounted to you as righteousness if you just believe Him, if you trust Him. And he said, look, it worked for Abram. Our founding father, he said it worked for him. He said back before his name was even changed, Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And he said, therefore, it is possible for you to believe God and have righteousness credited to you as a result. And Jesus would say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You see, God's consistent throughout the scripture from beginning to end. He's over and over again saying the same things in different ways, culturally and, and, and verbally. He's, he's putting out the same substance of substantive material, but in different ways so different people will understand it differently. And in Abram's day, Abram believed God that he would have a son. He believed God that he would have the promised land. He believed God and God credited that to him as if it were righteousness. Because it wasn't righteousness. It was just belief. And in that belief was the credit for righteousness. And in, the, in that grace, you find peace. And in the justification of His covering, you discover peace. And in the reality of His presence, of His advent, you find peace. And in the reality of the resurrection, you discover there is peace. When you know that the Almighty God risked everything to come and be a baby like you were, to grow up on this planet like you did, to live a life similar to you, was tempted in all manner just like you, and yet was without sin. And he died because he wanted to make an exchange for us and was resurrected in the end. And when you 
begin to recognize that story is about your rescue and mine, it brings peace. Religiosity never brings peace. No matter how ardent our attempts and our behaviors, it is only the grace and covering of Jesus Christ that brings the peace. It was what he gave to Abram, and it's what he's offering you. You remember the rest of the story, right? Abram Abram believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, and immediately then he began to question God. I don't know how you feel about that, but I absolutely love that. Because I am that guy. I've lived that life. I do that thing. Absolutely, God, I believe you're standing on your throne, and I trust you this morning at 6.57 now, because I've been pounding on my desk for the last two minutes, but I still have to preach, and I've got to have it ready for these guys to put on slides in an hour. Can we get on with this? Be nice if you just turn that thing back on for me. You could do that, you know. I believe it's accounted to as righteousness, but your computer is going to continue to be off. And so God says to Abraham, go and get a couple animals. He's bringing an ox, a calf, goat, sheep, a couple of birds. Cut them in half. When he did that, Abraham knew exactly what was about to happen. He was about to sign a contract. You know, you know, when you're sitting at your table and the salesman is sitting across from you and he reaches in his pocket, you know what's about to happen, right? You know, you've been talking and you've been talking and you've been talking and you've been talking and now he goes in for that pocket and pulls out a pen. You know what's happening now, right? You know he's about to say to you, she's about to say to you, Right there on the bottom, I'll need you to sign, and then I'm going to have you initial in places 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 43, and 44, and sign on the bottom and date it. And you say, what am I going to initial? And they say, well, you really want to know? If you're me, you say, yes, I do. If you're me, you've read the contract before you sign it, because I don't put my name on anything I haven't read. Freaked the real estate agent out when I told her I'd read the entire contract. You know that pen means it's time to sign, right? When he told Abram, go get some animals, start cutting them up. Cut these animals in half. Cut them up. Abram knew exactly what it meant. It was, it was the, the, the day passing on as he cut up those animals and he had to chase off the buzzards and stuff during the day. And night fell and Abram fell asleep. I don't know. He was tired. I don't know. The Spirit of the Lord fell on him and he relaxed. Maybe he just found peace in looking at these animals. I don't know. But Abram went to sleep. And while Abram was sleeping, a fiery torch and a smoking pot moved between the animals. Now here's what you have to understand. This kind of a contract was signed between the conquered and the conqueror. This was the contract that the conquered signed at the behest of the conqueror. It was the conqueror who said to you, okay, All right, Jimmy, we just whipped your entire army, your city's in ruins, the walls are all broken down, come here. And you went out with your head bowed, 
And he said, get some animals from your flock. Bring them out here. Cut them in half. You know what's next? He's reaching in his pocket. He's pulling out the pen. He said, Jimmy, while, while these animals are bleeding out here on the ground, I want you to walk down through the middle of those animals with your feet in the blood that's oozing out from them as their life ebbs away. I want you to walk through that bloody path made by those animals. And here's what you're going to say, Jimmy. You're going to say, let it be done to me as was done to these animals if I should break my covenant with this man who has conquered me. Standard contract. This is as boilerplate as any contract we have today. This is what was done. Go to read, I think it's Jeremiah about 34. Brings up this same contract. And so Abram was supposed to walk back and forth between these animals and he was supposed to recite, let it be done to me as was done to these animals if I should break my covenant with God. That was what was supposed to happen. But Abram's asleep. Abram is passed out asleep. And instead of Abram walking between the animals, a smoking pot and a flaming torch in the hands of an invisible God move between the animals. And God says, let it be done to me, as was done to these animals, if I should break my covenant with Abram. And oh, by the way, he's asleep, so let it be done to me, as was done to these animals, if Abraham breaks his covenant with me. And see, that's why there's a manger. That's why there was a cross. Because the God of heaven signed both sides of this contract. He passed through those animals and he said, I'll hold up my end and I'll hold up your end too. You see, the Prince of Peace was able to be the purveyor of peace because his stripes healed us. The Prince of Peace could arrive, lay in a manger, grow on the planet, grow up to be the ultimate sacrifice because he signed a contract. He made a promise. I will hold up my end of this contract and I will hold up yours. You don't have to worry about it now that you've understood it and accepted that I got both halves of this. What I'm offering you is peace. I'm offering an opportunity for worry to be gone. I'm offering an opportunity for you to accept that I have this. To believe that I actually know what's going on. That I actually have all of life in the palm of my hand. And I have you. And you can trust me.
I have your best interest at heart. You can rest in that. Ultimately, completely, how did Jesus get to be the prince of peace? He fought an awful battle. And he defeated sin. And he overcame the authority of Satan on the planet. And he said, okay, now you see it? Now you get it? It has been done to me as was done to those animals. So that your half of the covenant is covered. Let's pray. Father God, this is all so beyond us. It's beyond our understanding for sure. Mostly it's beyond our comprehension as well. But we understand this one thing. That because of you, we can rest. No matter what the circumstances around us are, eight days before Christmas, bad news from the doctor, struggles with our life, our family, our spouse, our children. No matter what stands in front of us, we know that you stand behind us. And so today we choose again to trust you. Because ultimately you absolutely proved you stand by what you said. That you took the punishment that was ours so we didn't have to. That we were, who were born unrighteous might not remain unrighteous because you were born Righteous. Exchange your righteousness for our unrighteousness. Thank you for justification. Just as if I never.